you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. Oh, have we got a fun one for you today. I can almost guarantee, and I, and I say almost because, you know, the minute I guarantee it and don't say almost will be the minute that some smart aleck out there has um, actually heard of this. So I can almost guarantee none of you will have ever heard of today's heretic. <laughs> the Arabici or the era BC, depending on how, would you, how you would like to uh, pronounce your Latin. I am not particular either way. We may Valentinus this bad boy today and try to pronounce it every different way every time we say it. But, told you you hadn't heard of him before. Now, before you go all, where, who, what, where, what, why, how, they were small. And I will admit this. They were a small group from the first half of the third century. Their founder is unknown. The only thing we really know about them in that regards is they were popular in the area of Arabia. Hence the name given them to given to them, if I could speak English, given to them by Augustine, don't you know? Very uh, famous early, well, not really early Middle Ages. It'd be late Roman Empire, I guess, theologian. Now, if you thought Arabici was bad enough, <laughs> it gets worse. They were also known as the Thanatopsukatai, which roughly translates into the, uh, the death of the soul. So how did this lovely group of lovely people get such lovely little names, you may ask? Well, 1 Timothy 6.16 was their exegetical stumbling point. They... Uh, they read where only God possesses immortality, and then they basically decided that they wanted to build their entire eschatology around that idea. Uh, never, never a good idea, but luckily, luckily for us, this is our first episode. Hang on, we've got to get, the, gotta get our, our fist pound there. Our first episode of Heretics that has a happy ending. According to Eusebius, writing in Church History, Book 6, Chapter 37, Origen got them back into the fold during a uh, called council or synod, whatever you want to call it, somewhere around the middle of the 3rd century. 250 is the traditional gate that's given. Given I'm uh, reticent to endorse that date simply because I think in 250, Origen was in prison. Kind of hard to have a council when your butt is in jail. So somewhere mid-3rd century. Now, that notwithstanding, that's hysterical if you know your history of hermeneutics at all. Origen, the, uh, the godfather of the allegorical interpretation of Scripture, getting credit for fixing another group's exegetical mistakes. Excuse me. That's borderline high comedy right there. I mean, that's Saturday Night Live in the 70s and 80s level comedy right there. Now, obviously we're going to condemn this view. This is heretics after all, and we condemn every view we talk about because they're all condemnable. So there you go. That's just how that works. Now, we condemn them, any other group, soul sleep, annihilationist, which we won't get into today, but uh, all of these uh, eschatological views we condemn, and for multiple reasons, and the first of which is actually logical in its origin. Uh, the Arabici 
flaw in their logic, if I can say it that way, or they had a flaw in their logic in their regards to their understanding of God. And I know what you're thinking. Because you listen to a podcast like this, I know what you're thinking. Don't go giving me logic. I came here for Bible. Lower your guns. Chill out. Don't go down that road on me just yet. God makes sense. And because God makes sense, he is logical. How we relate to him is logical. Notice what I said there. I'm not making a Trinitarian argument here. The Trinity doesn't make any sense, humanly speaking. I'm not even going to try to convince you otherwise. But God in and of himself makes logical sense. Not always to me, but he does. Now, if God does make logical sense, then I can understand how I relate to God, which is what we're actually discussing when we are discussing the Arabici. Now, in their instance, they failed by applying that which is true of the greater, in this case God, directly to the lesser, which in this case is humanity, in the same manner and in the same degree or way. Now, when we get to the correction, we'll flesh this out, but understand the problem here. That what they're holding to is a view that says, or that sees God through the lens of the human, defining God and his attributes in light of us. This is what we call a theology from below, and it's always, always, always going to lead to an aberrant view of God and a misunderstanding of his attributes. While they were looking to deny human equality with God, which is good. It's, it's admirable. They, we should be looking for that. They did so by assuming the equality of attributes between God and us, they're, thereby they're de, uh, de, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Defining, I want that word. They are defining our immortality based on God's rather than our relationship to God, and that's an important distinction. Now, here's where this is going to get real fun hermeneutics for the win baby this is where we kind of dive in there are baseline rules to follow which really the uh, the thanatopsukatai ran straight through did not did not even blink on this we're supposed to read the later works of scripture through the lens of the early works of scripture not the other way around if you're a smart bible reading person then you just went wait a minute don't i read my old testament in light of the new well yeah you do and, and, and you should, actually. But we don't reimagine the Old Testament in light of the New. We allow the earlier work to build the foundation upon which later works of Scripture come. So we don't read Ecclesiastes in light of Revelation. We read Revelation in light of Ecclesiastes. And yes, there's actually a connection between those two that we're not getting into today. Likewise, we don't read Paul... I'm sorry, we don't read Jesus in light of Paul. We read Paul in light of Jesus. That becomes very, very important. And we'll get through that as we we dig into this, uh, again, in the correction. Now, more on hermeneutics. We have a second understanding we've got to remember. So later, in light of the earlier, we utilize the clear text to interpret the unclear text. So if you have a text of scripture that's fuzzy, we don't build entire theologies like, um, like Paul talking about baptism for the dead. We don't build entire theologies. I'm looking at you Mormons, you heretical cult of Christianity, because we don't build our entire theologies over something that's mentioned one-off that doesn't make any sense in light of the rest of scripture. 
we read the clear and then we apply that to the unclear to make sense of it. So in this case, 1 Timothy 6 verse 16 does tell us that God alone possesses immortality. Now, if you read that and your answer is that, well, the soul sleeps before being awakened by the body, awakened to what I would love to know, then you failed to read this idea in light of the previously given clear commands and teachings. And I can demonstrate that by reading some of them. Uh, Jesus on his work on the cross, Luke 23, verses 42 and 43, Jesus tells one of the other condemned men what? That that day he will be with Christ where? In paradise. No sleep, no wait time, no cosmic waiting room or purgatorial endeavor. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 today with God in eternity. Jesus is clear. Now, this is why First Timothy, the verse in First Timothy must be read in a non-Arabician way. And if that's not a word, it is now. If you want to go later, but clear, go to Revelation 7, 9 through 17. What do we have? The victims of the Great Tribulation. What are they doing? They're now gathered around the throne of the Lamb. Souls, not sleeping, not waiting. They are there, not waiting as in the uh, not present sense. Instead, they're active present with their Savior the way he promised them. So again, you have to read 1 Timothy as saying something other than what the Arabici have determined. Last hermeneutical rule, and then we're going to get into the correction. This is big. Context and genre determine everything. Not some things. Context and genre determine everything. 1 Timothy 1 Timothy is a letter. I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm not even going to try to argue that it's not a letter because it is a letter. And typically, letters do fall under the category of didactic, that is, um, teaching material. But within a letter, there could be all sorts of different genres of, uh, of literature. We could have quotations. We could have poetry. We could have didactic teaching material. We could have doxological glorifying material. I mean, a good case in point is I think everyone would acknowledge 1 Corinthians is a letter. It is primarily didactic in nature. But in the midst of chapter 15, what we have is a creedal statement by Paul. It's not a didactic statement. It's a creedal, a confessional statement. It's a piece of historical literature placed within the didactic message of the book. You have the same thing here in 1 Timothy. That's genre. The second thing is context. The entire section in which verse 16 occurs actually begins in verse 13. Paul is charging Timothy to action. He is grounding that charge in the doxology of verse 16. Yes, you heard me correctly. A doxology, statement of praise, is the cornerstone of verse 16. I don't know about you. I don't want to take my main eschatological understanding from the Psalms or from worship music written today. That's not how we define doctrine. We define it through more didactic verses. A doxology is not and should not be treated as a, di as a didactic passage. Can we teach from a doxological uh, verse? Yes, absolutely. But we do it on the concept of principle, not direct command. And this is, again, another problem we have in the modern church. Too often we, we fall into one of two ditches. 
the ditch on the one side is that the Bible has no modern relation. It doesn't connect to the world today. That's typically the ditch of liberalism. We want to avoid that. But we don't overcorrect and crash into the other ditch that says everything in Scripture is a direct command. It's, it's just not. I mean, you'll see this with the angry atheists. Well, should we, should we kill and cast out the unbeliever and, and destroy the pagan nations the way God commanded Joshua? Well, no. I'm not Joshua. General of an army, leader of a people, occupying God's chosen country. Were I to do that, and God commanded me to do so, then yes, I should wipe out the infidel. But he hasn't, so I'm not. That's not how this Bible works. Instead, we deal on the principle. What is the meaning of the context in relation to through its genre that we can apply to our lives and learn and work from? See, to build an entire brand new eschatology based on the verse of a praise literature, that's just not just wrong. It's dumb. Now, just in case you haven't heard this before, the official position and stated rule of Practical Theology Ministries and Calvary Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois, is don't do dumb things, okay? If it's dumb, don't do it. It's the official rule, shall not be revoked, shall not be ignored, tis, was, and will be, don't do dumb things. This would be dumb. The modern equivalent would be like, I can't even come up with a modern equivalent. Be like coming up with a theology of, ooh, it'd be like becoming, coming up with a theology of worship based on shout to the Lord. You know, shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. See, there's a word in there that tells us that we should yell. Therefore, if you're not yelling when you sing in church, you are sinning against God. You, you're, you're doing that blink thing where you just kind of blink and reset your mechanism and go, did he just say something so stupid? Yes, yes, he did. That's the same thing you have going on with the Arabici. It's a bad idea. Don't do bad things. Don't do dumb things. So how do we correct this? Excuse me. How do we present, prevent, present? How do we prevent ourselves from falling into this same error? Well, for starters, we see God rightly as he is described, and therefore we see ourselves rightly as we are described. So we're made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 is clear about that. But remember that the clay of Romans 9 does not get to question the potter. Instead, we recognize the potter is beyond us. He is greater than us, and as God declares in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. So how does that work in this regard to the idea of immortality? This is where your knowledge of theology proper comes in handy. You have to actually be able to synthesize all of theology to make sense of these things. So God possesses, this is our theology proper, doctrine of God. God possesses a serity. And yes, you are required to say it that way. If you don't say it with a stiff jaw, like a, like a bored Englishman, it doesn't sound as fun. It doesn't make you sound as smart. So you can't just say God has a serity. He has to have a serity. What is a certainty? It is the property of self-existence. Now, philosophically speaking, that means God is the uncaused cause, or he is what you would call the first cause. Everything in the universe has to come back to an initial movement. So 
as, uh, as one theologian once put it, I don't have any problem with the Big Bang. I just know who banged it. So who hit the drum? Who engaged in the activity? It is God. So everything comes forth from that. And by the way, I do have a problem with the Big Bang, but that's a different discussion altogether. Who, where does this all come from? It comes from God. At some point, you have to get back to the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause, the first thing. And in theology, that is God. That is what Assyrity is seeking to explain. He is self Existent. He has the source and cause of life within himself. He does not draw it from something else, but it is who and what he is. This is the declaration of John 1.4. In the word, who was Jesus, was life. Jesus doesn't receive life. He himself is is life. He is not alive in the sense we are alive. He is alive in the sense that because he is self-existent, he cannot be anything else. He possesses it. Now, by contrast, we do not possess authority. Therefore, we are dependent beings. Our immortality, therefore, is granted through Christ, but it means just that. It is granted. We don't possess it. It is not intrinsic to us. Instead, it has been given to us by the one who does possess it, who it does intrinsically belong to. This is the difference between an eternal, without beginning or end God, and an immortal, with beginning, but not end soul. Understanding God rightly enables us to define ourselves in light of him. So God is eternal. We may talk about an eternal soul, but our soul is not eternal. It is immortal. So while God may possess immortality alone, logically speaking, he does possess it alone. He grants it to us. Now, we also have to be careful that we treat Scripture as a unity. This, unfortunately, is the, uh, the great failure of many Christians, both lay and clergy alike, unfortunately. A failure to see the value and benefit in the totality of the biblical witness. Why? Because it weaves together one fluid story across the ages and the continents of Scripture. Now, this would also be a good time to uh, plug our weekly worship services again. We are working through Exodus. We are just uh, a couple weeks into it, and we will be working through Exodus until 2022. And in that, in that book, we are going to do just this. We're going to walk through the book, seeing its story, but seeing the seeds of its story both in Genesis and seeing the ultimate sprouting and fulfilling of the story in Christ. So if you actually enjoy what we do on this podcast and you want to see some of this in action on a Sunday morning and in sermon, then click on over to Podbean on Sundays at 1030 Central uh, Daylight Time is what we're on right now, which if you're uh, one of the... Uh, shoot, my brain just fried. If you're one of those um, ty- uh, Meridian folks, that's minus six every Sunday. And when you log in, um, say hey to my wife. She's the one typically running the computer. And so you can tell her you can tell her why you're there. She'll get a kick out of it, and my head won't fit through the door on the way out. Ah, i got to get some water. So how does unity help us here? Plug over, by the way. We know from Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, we die, and then God judges us. For as appointed to him to a man wants to die and then face judgment. Simple basic tells the story. So what? We know from our previous look, though, at Luke 23 and Revelation 7 that that work is immediate. Excuse me. We also know that in Christ, we should not fear that judgment, as Paul explains to you in Romans 8, 14 through 17, and, and really in the entire chapter. Just, just, you know what, read Romans for this idea. It will do you some good. Paul mentions we have what? A new spirit, 
No fear, a future glory, adoption and freedom. All this and more can be yours in Christ. But how, you may wonder. They are yours in Christ because in our repentance, through the substitutionary work of Jesus, we have been given what? We have been given life. 1 John 5, 10 through 12 makes this point clearly. In the Son, we have been given life, and this is the testimony that we bear. If we have the Son, we have life. If we do not have the Son, we have, catch this, no life. And I don't mean that in like the lane you are a teenager, man, I have no life. I mean like actual life. This is the eternal part of eternal life that we discuss. If we have the Son, we have this. If we don't, we don't. God can grant this life without granting us his nature and being. And that's the key distinction the Arabici did not make. We don't have to become God in order to receive the gift of God. And by the way, part of the reason this is so important is this is a mistake the prosperity gospel is still making and ignoring today. They are equating the work of God with the work of people. This is your, uh, your name it, claim it, little God's doctrine. It's the, it's the same idea, and I'm going to stop right there because this is like a whole other episode that we will go down eventually, but not today. So, And also, by the way, at some point we will have to deal with the annihilationist idea here because this is part of the annihilationist movement is, see, you don't have the sun, you don't have life. Boom, kapow, kaput. We'll have to deal with annihilationism annihilationist easier for easy for me to say at another point there's there's too much there to try to dig into now so there you there's two more episodes that are going to come down the pike at some point lastly let's get back to our our big idea we must read the entire section in light of its place nature and role that's its context and genre the doxology of verse 16 stands in light of the charge of verses 13 through 15 so so let's do this let's do this rightly this is what the the thanatopsukatai got wrong we have seen that we will be with god if we are christ we have seen the immediacy of that dwelling we have seen the ability of god to grant that status to his people because of his son Therefore, we must read the words of verse 16 in the way they were intended, as praise of the eternal, almighty God, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift, James 1.17. This is where your hermeneutics helps you out. Beyond the logic, beyond the philosophy, beyond all that understanding— reading your Bible with first a knowledge of God and then an understanding of you saves you from going down this road. We have not been given the status of God. Rather, we have been fulfilled by his goodness and light. Timothy can do all the good work Paul is charging him to do in verses 13 through 15 precisely because God has removed the stumbling offense of sin and granted Timothy a status that only God, the self-living one, ever could. By realizing this, we avoid the ditch. We don't fall into the trap of creating a theology based on one verse with a fuzzy application. Rather, we see it because we read it rightly as what it is, a praise of God, a declaration of his great attributes, and a fulfilling, securing promise that in us, because of who he is, his great work will stand. So there you go. The Arabici Arabici Thanatopsukatai heresy fun, right? You will never hear of it again, I promise you. But it does set stages for how we attack this wrong idea, sets the stage for how we can attack some other wrong ideas that we will get to in the future. And some of them have already been mentioned today. So again, 
Thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you want to get past episodes, practicaltheologyministries.com. There you can find our Facebook, Twitter, newsletter, our theological journal, the uh, Cal- Cal- Calvary's Cavalry. Again, easy for me to say. No, June hasn't gone out yet. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to get the rest of the stuff in this week, and then I will be able to get hopefully June out, and then July will hopefully be on time at some point. Either way, you're getting 12 issues this year, I promise. They may all come in January, but you're getting them. If you'd like to read up on past issues, they're on the website. Uh, excuse me. You can also link to the uh, church's website, Calvary Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois, where, again, you are welcome to join us at 1030 Central Time, which is, again, minus six every Sunday morning. Uh, you can log in and get the audio live stream right here on Podbean and join in and worship with us. We would love to have you if you're not at your church. Otherwise, go to your church and then, you know, download it and listen to it later. That'll be awesome. You can hear the music in the whole nine yards. Uh, that covers everything. So until we see you again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.